Thessalonians, and if you have a Bible, you can open to chapter 2. There should be an outline in your bulletin. There are printed messages at both exits. You can get one uh, now or later, as you like, and all of those are on the church website as well. Um, And uh, we're now putting them on sermonaudio.com. And it takes a little adjustment to do searches on there, but you can search them all out by book or series or whatever you want. You just have to fiddle around with it till you get the new system, but um, they're gaining distribution through that means now. We're going to cover verses 1 through 8 of chapter 2. I didn't know where to break this off. There's really a lot here. And both this week and next week are kind of the same theme because Paul develops the same theme in 9 through 12 as he does in 1 through 8. But there was no way I could have covered the first 12 verses. So uh, we're going to be looking at the theme of effective discipleship. Paul writes, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, We had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, literally our own souls, because you had become very dear to us. I want to begin by asking two questions this morning. The first one is hopefully easy. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? If you answered that one yes, the next question may be a little more intimidating, and that question is, well then, are you discipling others? Uh, Let me define those terms. A disciple is a follower of Jesus Christ, and while none of us follow him perfectly, it describes a direction of life. Before you met Christ, you were following your own desires and lusts and, and aims and goals and all of that. And then you met Christ, and you turned around and began to follow him, where you seek to be obedient to him, to the teachings of his word as we read in the Bible. To disciple others, then, is very simply to help them follow Jesus Christ. Uh, Mark Deaver came out with a book this year called Discipling, which I just read, and he defines it this way. He says, discipling is deliberately doing spiritual good to someone so that he or she will be more like Christ. 
deliberately doing spiritual good to someone so that he or she will be more like Jesus Christ. In the Great Commission, Jesus commanded his followers, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. These are familiar verses. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That's the command, make disciples. Going is a participle. Going, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe or obey all that I commanded you. So the command to make disciples then applies to all Christians. Sometimes I think it's thought, well, well, that's for the pastors or missionaries or those people in full-time Christian work. But I believe that every Christian has received a spiritual gift and you are to implement that gift, to use that gift in serving Jesus Christ and just part of the command to love one another, which we're all commanded to do. If you love someone, you want to help them be like Jesus. And so that's discipleship, being committed to helping others grow up in uh, Christ-likeness. And I believe that discipleship should not so much be a program of the church where you sign up for, you know, Discipleship 101, but rather it, it ought to be the, the culture of the church, the climate, the atmosphere in which we all operate so that uh, we're all aiming at helping one another be more like Christ. It's a mindset. It begins in the home where parents evangelize and disciple their children. And then it ripples out from the home throughout the whole church uh, where we help one another grow in godliness. And in our text, the Apostle Paul gives three um, crucial ingredients for effective discipleship. He shows that effective discipleship is built on a godly message, a godly manner, and a godly motive. The godly message is simply the gospel. Uh, The godly manner is evident or obvious love for one another, and the godly motive is to please God from the heart. So if you're clear on the gospel, and you're evident or obvious in your love for others, and you're doing everything out of a motive to please God who examines your heart, God is going to use you to help others grow in Christ, to be more like Him. So first of all, let's look at the fact that effective discipleship is built on a godly message, the gospel of God. Now, I'll say more about this as we go on in chapters 2 and 3, but for now let me point out that the backdrop for 1 Thessalonians 2 and 3 is that Paul was under a vicious attack from opponents who were trying to discredit him and thereby discredit his message, the gospel. If you can discredit the messenger, then people tend to disregard the message. It may have been Paul's um, opponents that drove him out of Thessalonica, the Jews. He mentions them down in chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. But Paul mentions the gospel here. You'll notice, look at your text in verse 2, again in verse 4, verse 8, 
and verse 9 of chapter 2 as well. We saw it back in chapter 1, verse 5, and we'll see it again in chapter 3, verse 2. Three times, verse 2, verse 8, and verse 9, he refers to it as the gospel of God. And that means the gospel that comes to us from God. Uh, Paul didn't make it up. It was something that God revealed to Paul when he saved him. And so it is a message to us from God. And if we reject the gospel, we're not just rejecting human words or human religious genius. We're rejecting the God who spoke the universe into existence, who has revealed himself to us primarily in his Son and through the apostolic witness that we have in the New Testament. Now, the gospel, as you think about it, stands against every other system of religion, including some that go under the the banner of Christianity. Here's why. Every system of religion is it's a system of man working his way up to God somehow, of human uh, effort and attempts to make yourself worthy, uh, to be accepted by God in some way because you've done certain things. That's every system of religion. Now sometimes, for example, in the Roman Catholic Church, they combine faith and works, but it muddies the whole deal. In other words, they'll say we're saved by uh, grace through faith. They agree with that. And then they all kind of slip in there, plus we have to add our works. And it's similar to the Galatian error where the Judaizers said, oh, Paul, we agree. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Amen. Uh, But also, you've got to keep the Jewish law. So they added that in. And Paul said that negates the whole thing. Um, And so, like, for example, in the Catholic Church, uh, you, you do penance for your sins, you go to church, you, you clean up your life and live a moral life, you help the poor, you give to the church, and by all these different activities, you're accumulating merit. They use that term. You're adding merit, and at some point, the scale hopefully tips, maybe even after you're dead and you're in purgatory, they would say your relatives can give to the church and they can pray for you, and eventually the, te- the scales will tip and you'll get out of there and into heaven. So it's faith plus works. The gospel is we are saved by, from God's judgment, from his wrath, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And works are the result, not the means of salvation. And that distinction is crucial uh, nowhere says it better than Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, where Paul says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. And then he specifically adds, not as a result of works that no one may boast. And then what about works? Well, he adds, verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So the gospel 
and the word means good news, is truly good news for sinners because it means this. You don't have to do a self-improvement program first and qualify, and then God will accept you. You come to God just as you are, with all of your sin, all of the mess that your life is. You come to him just as you are, and you believe in him. And the Apostle Paul makes it very clear, for example, in Romans 4, 5, he says, but to the one who does not work, again, he denies works, does not work, but believes in him who justifies those who make a pretty good effort. No, he believes, or he justifies the ungodly. The ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Jesus illustrated the same truth in his parable of the the, uh, Pharisee and the publican or the tax collector who went up to the temple to pray and the Pharisee was boasting in, you know, I thank you, I'm not like other people because I tithe and I do this and I do that. And he's emphasizing all of his works. And the tax collector knew he was a dirty, rotten sinner from ripping off his fellow people. And he couldn't even look up to heaven. He just beat his chest and said, oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus said, that man went down to his house justified. That man was right with God. And that is the absolute best news in the world. That any sinner, no matter how badly they've messed up their life, no matter what kind of a mess they're in right now, can come to the cross of Jesus Christ and believe in him and his shed blood covers all of their sin the minute they believe. That, that is the best news in the world. And that's opposed to every system of religion out there. Every other system. And, you know, unbelievers, you say, well, why would they oppose Paul? Uh, he's being opposed here. Why would they oppose that message? Well, the Bible is clear that the self-righteous take pride in their self-righteousness. And if you come along and say your self-righteousness is just, uh, you know, a bucket of filth in the presence of God, huh, how dare you? You know, you're, you're insulting their pride. And they want to hang on to their pride, which, of course, is the uh, endemic sin of all of us. And so they will oppose the messengers of the gospel. But even if they oppose us, we shouldn't back off or we shouldn't apologize for the message. Paul says he was mistreated in Philippi, That's putting it lightly. And then he comes and he has the boldness to speak the same message to the Thessalonians, he says, amid much opposition. But we can't compromise the message of the gospel to win converts. Um, Another reason unbelievers don't like the gospel is that, as I pointed out last Sunday, An essential part of it is God's wrath and judgment against all sin. And again, people don't like that. They want to say, well, are you telling me? I mean, I'm a good person. I've never killed anyone. I go to church. I pay my taxes, you know. I'm a decent citizen. I've never been to prison. You're telling me that God is going to judge me someday? Yeah. Yeah, well, they don't like that. They don't like that message. But again, we shouldn't 
compromise that message to win converts. So my point is, effective discipleship rests on this solid foundation of the gospel of God, the gospel revealed to us in God's word. And you can tell a false teacher, and there are many of them around these days, false teachers are going to tell people what they'd like to hear so that they'll get a big following. Oh, they'll talk about building your self-esteem. They'll talk about having your best life now. Who doesn't want to hear about that? Yeah, amen, give it to me. But they don't talk about sin and righteousness and judgment. And so to build godly disciples, we have to stick to the message of the gospel. The second thing Paul points out is that effective discipleship is built on a godly manner, and that is evident love for people. And you see that in verses 7 and 8. But we proved, he says, to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives or souls, because you had become very dear to us. When people feel the love of Christ through us, they're more open to listen to the message of Christ. And so it always has to come through evident love on our part. Now, let me deal with the technical matter. There is a difficult textual variant in verse 7. Some early manuscripts read, We became babes among you, whereas other manuscripts read, We became gentle among you. And the difference in the Greek text is one letter. Uh, It's the presence or absence of the letter new or in in Greek. One has the new, one doesn't. Um, Babes is the better attested and more difficult reading because it doesn't seem to fit with the metaphor of being a nursing mother in the very next part of the verse, uh, tenderly caring for her own children. And generally, when, when you're doing textual criticism, the more difficult reading is probably the original because a scribe is more likely to scratch his head and say, that reading doesn't make sense, I'm going to change it to this, than he would to leave an obvious reading and change it to a more difficult one. So most or many scholars prefer that reading babes, even though Paul usually uses the word babes in a negative way, as he does in 1 Corinthians 3 when he says, I couldn't talk to you as mature people in Christ, but you were just like babies. Uh, And and he puts them down for their spiritual immaturity. Um, Paul uses this word gentle one other time in reference to how the Lord's bondservants need to relate to others. In 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, He says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind. And that's the Greek word gentle. That's the variant reading here. Be gentle to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. So it's a difficult thing to figure out which word is original here. I think if the original was babes, Paul's using it in the sense of the gentleness of a baby or perhaps the um, defenselessness of a baby that he came in there with no defense 
But the image in the second part of the verse of a nursing mother tenderly caring for her own little baby is just a picture of the love of Christ that is to come through those who proclaim the gospel to others. Um, Now, before we all go, oh, isn't that sweet, you know, let's all have love for one another like a nursing mother, may I point out the obvious. Uh, Babies are needy. Babies are often difficult. Babies often uh, are inconvenient and they are time-consuming little critters. Every mother says, this is true. This is obvious. Babies dirty their diapers. Babies scream when they have a need and they don't tell you what the need is. Uh, Babies uh, throw up all over your clothes and don't even apologize. Babies wake you up in the middle of the night when you're trying to sleep and so on. They, They just require a lot of attention. And the point is, so do new believers. They're babes in Christ and they do all sorts of things that require us to come alongside them and care for them and love them and wipe up their puke and do other unpleasant jobs and so on. And what I'm saying is this, you can't love others if you're not willing to sacrifice yourself and your time and to be inconvenienced. But it's through your love that others are going to grow in Christ. Note also that Paul is using really emotional terms here. Uh, Sometimes we make love kind of academic, you know. We define it, and it's this and that and the other, and it's out there. But Paul's sharing his heart here. These are emotional terms he's using to show he had deep feelings for these people. And the whole of chapter 2 and 3, it just bleeds through He misses them dearly. He wishes he could be with them. He feels for them. He he really um, showed his affection for them. And he he reminds them of it. Um, He uses, you know, you recall, you are witnesses in verse 1, verse 2, verse 5, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11. He's, He's telling them, you guys remember how much I felt this love for you when I was with you, and I still feel it. And uh, he's showing that his love for them is evident. And he says we imparted not only the gospel, but then also our own lives or souls. And part of sharing your soul with people is being open and vulnerable. Uh, Letting a new Christian know where you struggle. So often, even in the church here, we we put up images, you know. Here's who I am. I am a godly man. I do this, I do that. And and we don't let people inside to say, yeah, I do struggle with that. Yeah, I was discouraged this week. Yeah, yeah, this is hard. Uh, One of the commitments I made when I became a pastor 39 years ago is, if I ever preach on something that's up there, and I'm down here, I'm not going to give the image, I'm up there. You know, if I preach on prayer, I'm going to let you know I am a fellow struggler in prayer. It's not easy. And I fall short or whatever the issue is because otherwise there's a hypocrisy that sets in and I put myself up on a pedestal and and, uh, it's not real. And so I want to be open 
And if you're trying to disciple a younger believer, you have to share your struggles and let them know, yeah, yeah, I wrestle with lust too. Yeah, anger's a problem, isn't it? And be honest about it and then bring them to the resource, the Word of God and the Spirit of God for how we can make victory, gain victory in those areas. So first of all then, effective discipleship is built on this godly message, the gospel of God. Secondly, it's built on a godly manner, which is evident love for people that involves sharing our lives with them and bringing them into this circle of love in the body of Christ. The third thing, effective discipleship then, is built on a godly motive, and that is pleasing God from the heart. And we could call this integrity before God, but there are six ways here that we see that Paul pleased God. Six ways he pleased God. First of all, we please God when we seek his glory and not our own. Verse 4, Paul says, Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. And then he adds in verse 6, nor did we seek glory from men. So Paul lived his life with this Godward focus where he thought of things in terms of God and God examining his heart. And he wanted to please God and to glorify God. And that begins, again, on the heart or on the thought level. Uh, when Paul says here, we aren't pleasing men, he doesn't mean he was insensitive or abrasive with people. Uh, elsewhere, he talks about how he sought to please people, uh, not to needlessly offend people, but he was at the same time uh, behind everything he did, thinking, God, you know my heart? I want it to be right with you. I want it to glorify you. That was his focus. And pleasing and glorifying God has to begin on the heart or thought level because God knows our hearts. See, you can put on a good show. You can fool people in public and get up and look godly and all of that. And God looks on the heart. And Paul says here, we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. And then he adds, the God who examines our hearts. And so God looked at Paul's heart, knew he was sincere before God. Not perfect, certainly, but sincere that he really wanted to please God. And God said, all right, Paul. Here is the treasure of the gospel. And the point is this. You know, a guy can be a captivating speaker and a dynamic leader and motivate people and all of that. Everyone goes ooh and ah, but God knows what goes on in his heart. And you got to get real with God on the heart level. Uh, I've known of preachers who are really effective in the pulpit, and they're defeated all week by pornography. I've known of preachers who project that they are just so warm and loving, and they get home and they yell and scream at their wife and kids. There's, there's a double thing going on here. They're not dealing with God on the heart level. Now, you say, well, where do you begin? Well, I think you begin by establishing and maintaining a clear conscience before God and before men. Paul said that, and he's witnessing here to a Roman governor, Felix, 
in Acts 24.16, he said, I do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. Now, to do it before God means the second I have a sinful thought, I, I turn from that, I confess it to the Lord and say, Lord God, I don't want my thoughts to be there. I want to please you on the thought level. Uh, and then if I've wronged someone, I go to that person and I say, you know, God convicted me that I was wrong when I spoke to you the way I did or when I said this or whatever it was. And I've come to ask, will you forgive me? And, and we maintain that clear conscience before God and before others. And then we just aim in our lives to please God in all respects, our thoughts, our words, our actions, um, not so that we look good to others, but so that God looks good through us. That's what it means to glorify God. God, I want Jesus Christ to get the glory through my life. And that's got to begin on the heart level. And when you begin to walk with God with that kind of reality and integrity, you'll impact others because they want that. And so you, you start there, uh, pleasing and glorifying God on the heart level. Then a second way we please God is by enduring trials with steadfast joy. Paul mentions in verse 2 how he and Silas had been suffered and been mistreated in Philippi before they came to Thessalonica. And you can read about that in Acts 16. Uh, they were unjustly beaten without a trial as Roman citizens, thrown in the stocks in the jail. Their backs were raw, and at midnight they were singing praises to God. And it's interesting, when Paul wrote the letter of Philippians, he was unjustly imprisoned in Rome. And uh, he wrote that letter, and it just brims full of the joy of the Lord, even though Paul was being unfairly attacked by other preachers in Rome. Uh, joy is just the theme of that book. And in Philippians 4.4, he tells them, Rejoice in the Lord. There's the key. In the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. Now then Paul, after all of that in Thessalonica, I mean Philippi, comes to Thessalonica. And guess what? Verse 2, he says, we, we spoke the gospel to you amid much opposition. Same thing. I could easily see myself saying, God, this isn't fair. You know, I just suffered in Philippi. Give me a break. My back is still raw. I need a little break from this. Uh, and... Uh, you know, he could threaten to quit preaching unless he got better treatment. And Paul didn't do that. He just joyfully keeps on preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. I've watched people over the years, <clears throat> both people in full-time ministry or people who serve in the church in some way, and they charge into it optimistically and enthusiastically. Bam! They get criticized. And... I've seen them quit with hurt feelings, anger, whatever it may be. Sometimes they get angry with God. They're angry with the Christians who mistreated them. Uh, they blame others. They drop out of church. 
Uh, I've seen some, they all kind of carefully come back, but they sit on the edge and they don't ever get involved again because they got wounded. Well, serving the Lord is not a Sunday school picnic. It's battle. It's spiritual battle, and you don't go into spiritual battle expecting, you know, watermelon and uh, water balloon fights. You you go into battle expecting you're going to get hit. Now, when I began in ministry... I naively thought, it's the world that's going to hit me. Uh, you know what? The world really doesn't care what I'm doing that much. They're out there doing their thing, and they're not all that concerned about what goes on in the church. The enemy invariably hits you from within, and it really stings. You know, a fellow believer, maybe somebody you discipled, somebody that you poured your life into, and they turn against you. Well, guess what? Jesus had Judas, and and Paul had Demas who deserted him. It happens. And you have to go into battle with your eyes open saying, you know what? Uh, that, That may happen, but I'm not serving them. I'm serving the Lord. And you endure those trials with steadfast joy. And when you do, it will help others to grow in Christ. It's part of discipling others. A third way we please God that we see here from the heart is through pure doctrine. In verse 3, Paul says, Our exhortation does not come from error. So the truth of the gospel is foundational, but then all truth builds on that truth of the gospel throughout the Bible. The Bible says God is the God of truth. Jesus said of the Father, Your word is truth. And in Paul's pastoral letters to Timothy and Titus, there's this frequent theme. These are the last letters Paul wrote. This frequent theme about sound doctrine. You can trace it through. Sound doctrine. And it's interesting, the word sound there is a Greek word from which we get our word hygienic. Hygienic meaning something that produces health. Sound doctrine produces healthy Christians. Weak or false doctrine is like junk food. It, it makes people spiritually not so well, uh, spiritually unhealthy. And so to disciple others, you feed them sound doctrine, and then you teach them how to feed themselves sound doctrine from the source of that, the Word of God. Now, it's amazing how much Paul had taught these new believers, many of them were from a pagan background, in the short time, just a few months probably, that he had been with them. He assumes in chapter 1 that they knew about the doctrine of election. He doesn't even explain it. He just states it and moves on. Same thing about the doctrine of the Trinity. He mentions the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in chapter 1 and doesn't pause to say, let me explain. Um, He had taught them about that. He had taught them uh, a number of other uh, truths, suffering, the second coming of Christ, moral purity, other things. Now, in teaching sound doctrine, we have to distinguish. There are essential truths, and if you deny those, you are not a Christian in any orthodox sense of the word. And then there are what we might call secondary truths that are important, but We have to admit, godly people differ. And then there's some out there truths that it really doesn't affect your Christian life at all. 
and we shouldn't bicker over those. Um, how do you distinguish them? Well, I would say if it re- relates to the gospel, anything related to the gospel is essential truth. That would include the doctrine of the Trinity, the deity and humanity of Jesus, his substitutionary atonement on the cross, how we're saved by grace through faith alone, those kind of doctrines. You can't, you can't uh, get rid of those, the resurrection of Jesus and all of that. Then there are other matters, and I'm not saying they're not important. They are. They affect how you live your Christian life, but godly people do differ. Biblical prophecy, we'll get into that in chapter 4. Um, spiritual gifts, church government, uh, church ordinances, baptism, the Lord's Supper, methods for ministry, there's others we could go into. And again, these are important and they do affect people, but they aren't essential to be a Christian. And we need to be gracious there. Uh, We do live, however, in this postmodern era where the whole notion of truth is under fire. And the argument is, well, truth is relative if you can even know it, but we can't even know it because we don't know the meaning of words and so on. And so we have to hold to the concept there is such a thing as truth. It is revealed in the written word of God. Now, when you teach the truth, again, expect to catch flack. You, you can't teach the truth without the enemy, who is a liar and the father of lies, coming at you in some way. And if you're not cut out to catch flack, then keep your mouth shut about the truth, because you'll catch it. Second uh, Timothy 4, Paul exhorts Timothy, this is the last chapter Paul ever wrote, to preach the word. He said preaching the word includes reproving, rebuking, exhorting with all patience. And then he adds this, first, Second Timothy 4, 3 and 5, through 5. He says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Sound doctrine has to be endured. <laughs> it's kind of like spinach, you know. You, you eat it, not because you like it as much as chocolate chip ice cream, but you know it's good for you, so you eat your spinach. Uh, he says, the time will come they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from, here it is, the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now, why did he add endure hardship? Well, because when you preach the truth, even if you do it in love, you're going to catch flack. And I think that's at every level. So expect it. So you please God then by seeking his glory. You please God by enduring trials with steadfast joy. Uh, you, you please God by pure doctrine. Fourthly, we please God through moral integrity. In verse 3, Paul says his exhortation did not come from impurity. And in that day, there were these, well, it's true in our day, there were false teachers who used their status as teachers to prey on unsuspecting women and um, do the ministry just basically for sexual impurity as their motive. Uh, That is always tragic. 
but it's been around. Second Peter chapter 2, Peter warned of these false teachers. He says, they have eyes full of adultery. They entice unstable souls. And then he adds, this is Second Peter 2, 18 and 19, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. Again, moral purity begins on the heart or the thought level. You can't play games with God and be looking at porn and trying to claim you're walking with Christ. You've got to judge that sin on the thought level. Cut it off. Pluck out your eye, as Jesus said. Uh, get radical to be pure. Uh, the fifth way we please God is financial integrity. In verse 5, Paul says I, he didn't come with a pretext for greed. And then he adds, God is witness. And it's interesting, often in the Bible, greed and sexual lust are linked uh, many, many times. Jesus mentions both of them in a list of sins that he says come out of the heart. And... Uh, <clears throat> Sometimes you can look at the outward behavior of a man and say, you know, that guy's motivated by lust or by greed. But again, we don't know the heart. God knows the heart. And so to please God and to be discipling others, helping them to become like Christ, you've got to get real on the heart level and judge all lust and judge all greed and have financial integrity. Financial integrity involves being honest in all of your financial dealings. Uh, I think it involves paying your taxes, honestly, not cheating the government. Uh, If you get paid cash for a job, you don't just stuff it away and never report it. You report it on your tax form. Uh, If you're in a store and a clerk either gives you too much change or doesn't charge you what you owe, And you discover it, you make it right, and give a witness for why you're making it right. It's not that I'm an honest person, it's I'm a follower of Jesus. And you use that for witness. I believe greed is at the heart of gambling and uh, getting rich quick schemes, and I think Christians should avoid both of those. Greed is what keeps us from being generous givers to the Lord's work. So we have to examine our giving and say, am I being greedy or am I being generous and ready to share? Uh, So to disciple others effectively, uh, kill your greed. And then finally, we please God by avoiding all deception and manipulation. Paul says in verse 3, his exhortation did not come by way of deceit. And then he adds in verses 5 and 6, We never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even those apostles we might, apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. That word deceit in verse 3, some of you guys know this, uh, it's used a bait when you fish. When you fish, you're being deceitful. You put a worm on the hook, and that fish thinks, juicy meal. And he bites, and he becomes the juicy meal. 
So there's that element of deception involved. A deceitful person tells people what he knows they want to hear so that they'll treat him right and build him up, and he doesn't tell them the hard truth of the Bible, what they need to hear in order to be like Christ. And uh, in doing that, you're not discipling others. The Bible has a lot of hard stuff, and we need to be honest about that. Boy, this is tough, but this is what Christ commands. And you don't deceive. Flattering speech, when Paul says we didn't come with flattering speech, it means um, pleasing people to gain an advantage over them. And it's always manipulative. You've got an ulterior motive. I, I, years ago, worked with a guy that was always flattering you. And uh, Paul says he wrongly could have used his apostolic authority over them. He could have claimed, I'm an apostle, and you all need to listen to me, and so on. And he didn't do that. When he did use his authority, it was always to build others up, never to gain an advantage for himself. So to please God and disciple others, we've got to get rid of all deception and manipulation. Many years ago, there was an agnostic uh, man who was contemplating suicide, but he decided that if he could find a minister of the gospel who really lived it, he would go and listen to the man. And he actually hired a private investigator to track uh, a man named Will Houghton, who had been a pat well, he was a pastor, but he had recently become the president of Moody Bible Institute. And when the private investigator's report came back, he said, couldn't find anything on the guy. Uh, he's true to what he claims. He lives as he says. His life was above reproach. So that agnostic began to attend Houghton's church. He came to faith in Christ, and he later sent his daughter uh, as a student to Moody Bible Institute. But I wonder, what would a private investigator dig up on you? Well, you've got one. And he's the best private investigator in the universe because he knows your thoughts. And it's the Lord. And that's why Paul says if we want to get right with, with God, we want to deal, help other people get right with God, then we got to deal with God who examines the heart. And to do that, there is a godly message, the gospel of God. To do that, we've got to have a godly manner, love for others. And to do that, we have to have a godly motive that we're seeking to please God from the heart. So my prayer is that God would develop this climate, this culture of discipleship in this church where every one of us is walking with the Lord on the heart level and then we're seeking to help others. Uh, become all that God wants them to be. Let's bow together. Dear Lord, thank you for the Apostle Paul and the witness that we have of you through him, how he suffered so terribly for the gospel, and he never backed down, he never backed off. He continued to preach the truth until finally his head was cut off as your messenger. And Lord, I pray that you would help each of us to do business with you on the heart level. 
If any are here who think they're going to become a Christian by becoming a better person, I pray that you would show them that that's the result, not the means, and that they would come just as they are to the cross and receive the forgiveness you offer. I would ask, Lord, that if any of your people are playing games, living one life before others and a different life before you, that you would convict them and bring them again to the cross where they might gain a clear conscience and begin to walk in reality with you. And I ask, Lord, that you would help our church to be making disciples in this city and beyond as we seek to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.